The topic of the talks for this retreat are the seven factors of awakening. And these seven factors are considered to be jewels, the crown jewels of Buddhist practice. And the way that, one way to see how they're jewels, interestingly, is that it said the Buddha had a choice in the myth, ancient myths of the Buddha. He had a choice between becoming a world reigning monarch or king of the Dharma. And if he'd become a monarch, a world ruling monarch, he would have had seven jewels, seven treasures. As a Buddha, he also had, and those are worldly treasures, an army and real jewels and seven treasures they list. But as a Buddha, he had his jewels, his treasure were the seven factors of awakening. So you've set out the journey to become wealthy, to become, to have these wonderful treasures for yourself. And as we as I begin this talk, I would like to evoke, if I can, a sentiment or an attitude that I think it supports and helps entering into the world of Buddhist practice. And that's the attitude of reverence. You go into a, some temples and they call for a certain degree of reverence as we enter in. You go into the great majestic Yosemite or some of the great groves of sequoia trees. There's a kind of majesty and certain reverence that comes. Or if you go into a preschool classroom and all the kids are nursing, uh, not nursing, napping. It's one of the most reverent, (laughs) wonderful experience. You get very quiet, hushed. You don't want to disturb it. It's so special. It's one of the most beautiful silences. Almost as good as on retreat, the silence of preschool class, everyone's napping. I use that as an example in case the word reverence seems too religious for some of you. But certain things that have a lot of value, you shouldn't approach greedily. You shouldn't approach, like, I'm going to get something. I'm going to become, you know, the, the most enlightened kid on my block. You know, the acquisitive kind of nature about it. But rather to approach it with some reverence, some, dare I say, the word, humility or humbleness. A word that I like a lot is respect. And one of the reasons I like a lot that word for vipassana practice is because respect means to see again. Respect, like spectacle. So what we try to do here is stop and look again and look with respect, look with care, but perhaps also look with a certain degree of reverence. 
for me, the idea of reverence is related to a beautiful way, profound way, where we don't hold ourselves up in a like like we're like important in some way. Of course, you're important, very important, but there's something beautiful about just just be just being, not having to be anything for anybody. And so we enter into the temple here. The temple for us is not this building, is not Spirit Rock, but is a temple of practice. There is no Buddhism apart from people who practice it. And you're practicing. And so we enter this field, this realm. And so we're talking about the seven factors of awakening. And uh, they are very useful qualities of mind, of heart, to learn about. And sometimes we just learn what they are so that we're prepared someday when they become significant enough that they become important to recognize in our practice. And at some point, practice deepens, they become quite, they stand out like jewels and it's important to see them and, and appreciate them. And we teach them partly because they provide, they explain a, a journey. And uh, there's a journey that from the first one to the last one. And the f- journey of the first three, mindfulness, investigation, energy, I think it's useful to see as a deep, profound journey. <clears throat> Where the journey is not from A to B, but the journey is from A to A. We're going to, we're really trying to show up here and be really here, arrive here in some clear, full way. Not to try to get someplace else, maybe not even try to get some other experience or practice, but to really find some way to settle and arrive and really be here. So as we're saying, there's a lot of coming back, being here, being coming back, being here. And to come back and not be in conflict with what's here. It's one of the great things to uh, practice, to come here and not be in conflict with what's here. I, I have a feeling that to not be in, that the language of not, or the practice of not being in conflict, I kind of think is more profound than the practice of accepting what's here. Accepting maybe is too, Too much. It's enough not to be in conflict. It's more respectful than things can be. So to arrive here. And then uh, when we start arriving here, and maybe even this becomes our home, even when it's not comfortable to be here, there's something precious or meaningful that we're here with it. And I've had the experience and of being quite uncomfortable with my psychology, my emotions, my whatever's going on here. But what was precious was that I was present for it. I was alive in it. I was awake to it. Just that there, present. I wouldn't want to miss it. Just a chance to be here. 
And so then we come to the, this journey. First we show up, mindfulness, start paying attention. We look more deeply. As we look more deeply, we engage what's there, there's energy. We arrive more fully here. And then at some point, there's something like joy that arises. And many different qualities, a family of things like joy. But, but one of them is um, trust. I like the word trust a lot. We learn to trust to be here. Or a sense of well-being. Or even, as, or even if we don't feel well-being, a sense of rightness. Satisfaction or contentment. Here. Just this. The mind is not inclined to be looking outside of itself. And this is a very, this is an important tipping point in the seven factors, journey of the seven factors, when we have this well-being of joy or trust or contentment. Because that's really when the practice of showing up here becomes less a practice and a more an abiding, a resting here. And then the next step, which is the topic for today, is tranquility then we can start to relax. If we have the trust, sense of well-being, sense of arrive, arrived here, not in conflict, not chasing after things, but really here, then we can start, this whole system can, be in, can begin its deeper movements of relaxation, of letting go of the holding and tension that we carry, carry all the time. So we come to tranquility. It's a family of different qualities. Some, other, some words might work better for you than others. Relaxation, calmness, peace, a word that I am very fond of or feel very connected to is the word ease, a sense of ease. The heart is ease, the mind is at ease, the body's at ease, and how we function in the world is at ease, with ease. Tranquility. So what is it? How do we have it? How does it arise? How do we appreciate it more? Someone many years ago gave me a story of um, the monarch of the realm was going to have a contest to see who could make the most beautiful painting representing tranquility, peace. And many of the great artists of the land submitted their paintings. Some of them you were beautiful, seemingly very calm, tranquil pastoral scenes. And none of them met the monarch's satisfaction. And when all the famous and not so famous painters had submitted, there was nothing, no one, no one satisfied the monarch. So finally they kind of, they heard about some, you know, these kinds of stories, right? Some poor peasant, far out, boonies and Somehow, you know, they heard rumors was a painter of some ability or something and hauled the poor fellow person 
you have to make this painting for the king, the queen. So the peasant made a painting. And a big painting. And from a distance, when they finally unveiled it for the monarch, they were all kind of surprised. What? (laughs) This is not tranquil. It was a roaring waterfall, crashing and banging and foam and, you know, power and strength to it. You wouldn't want to stand under this waterfall. So they, you know, what, what gives? And the peasant said, oh, you have to get really close. So they all looked really close at the painting. And, and there, sure enough, if you looked really close, you saw there was a little gap where the water came down and kind of went around a rock. And if you look kind of underneath that rock, there was kind of a little, little ledge. And there was a bird sitting on its nest, on its, on its eggs, very calmly and peacefully. So that peasant won the contest. <laughs> so what's nice about it, his story, is the idea that it's not a peace or tranquility that's apart from the activities of life, the uproar of life, the challenges of life. But right in the midst of it, right there, there's a ledge, right there, there's a place where we can find our peace. And of course, the peace is in us, something we carry with us, something we find in ourselves. It doesn't require the world around us to be peaceful for us to be at peace. And perhaps that's the real peace. If your peace is dependent on the situation around you being peaceful, then you don't have a, a stable peace. Unless you believe <clears throat> that this teaching and practice and experience of tranquility is lightweight, you know, kind of all these Buddhists, you know, easy go, good, you know, easy go, just easy going, kind of. Something lightweights. It's good to remember that the whole design of this practice that we do was not so that you could drive your car on the freeway and not get stressed out. Not so that if they don't have enough dessert that you would kind of like, oh, it's okay, I can be okay with that. (laughs) The design of this practice was to help us meet and address the deepest most serious existential and psychological and human conditions of our lives. And this is what's, I think, what's represented in the, in the myth that the Buddha saw four heavenly messengers, right? He saw sickness, old age, and death. And then the fourth heavenly messenger was a, tran- a, a tranquil renunciant. And something about the tranquility and the peace that this renunciant had 
caught the Buddha to be's attention and said, there's another way. There's another way to peace. And given the contrast in the life of, you know, where sickness, old age, and death is such a big part of it. A friend of mine died yesterday morning. Quite something. The, um, so I wanted to read to you uh, a passage from the suttas. It's, I find quite touching. That scholars believe is the oldest record we have of the Buddha's description of what motivated him to engage in his quest and what he found in that quest. And what's, what's one thing that's very striking about this, rather than being provided, presented in mythic elements, this, you know, the four heavenly messengers, there's actually no historical basis for this idea that the Buddha saw four heavenly messengers. It's a, it appeared later, like 500 years after his life, that this was you know, just a myth, right? Buddhists like to tell stories. So this is considered the oldest. So here the Buddha says, violence gives birth to fear. Just look at people and their quarrels. I will speak of my dismay and the way that I was shaken. You don't think of the Buddha and that, those, words, those ideas, right? I will speak of my dismay and the way that I was shaken. Seeing people trashing about like fish in little water and seeing them in conflict with each other, I became afraid. That's the guy up there. I became afraid. The world is completely without a core. Everywhere things are changing. Wanting a place of my own, I saw nothing not already taken. In the end, seeing only conflict, I felt discontent. Then I saw an arrow here hard to see, embedded in the heart. Pierced by this arrow, people dash about in all directions. When the arrows pulled out, they don't run and they don't sink. So here is a, uh, an account, not of seeing sickness, old age and death exactly, but seeing a world of violence and conflict and quarrels. And many of us see that. Many of us have been, grew up and have experienced situations like that and maybe deeply been conditioned, shaped by our experiences of violence and fighting and war and things. And felt fear and dismay and been shaken by this. And this uh, profound thing, the Buddha stopped and looked inside. And in looking inside, he saw what he was doing. He saw the key, he saw the 
in some sense, the way to resolve or find peace in the midst of all this. He didn't find a way to create world peace. But he did find a way to make our heart at peace as we walk about this world. As we walk through our waterfall. And it makes a difference if we can find that. It makes a huge difference for the people around us, for ourselves, for the world. And so we practice so that we can see deeply into our hearts to see where the arrow is embedded in our heart. That because of this pain, we run around. Because it's pain, we keep looking, sometimes outside. The discomfort that gets us kind of angry or attacking or wanting or spinning around or confused. It's a quite an amazing thing and not an easy thing to do to finally stop all the running and all the wanting and all the aversion, all the criticism and really arrive here, the journey from A to A, to really be here so we can really start seeing what is here. And the function of tranquility is not just to be relaxed. Just relaxation by itself is kind of not so, it's just kind of, it's nice. But the purpose of tranquility is twofold in the tradition, in practice. One is to help something heal, to help something settle, to let something, begin to let something go, unwind, It's so important to let the heart settle, the mind settle, the body to relax. And then the second function, partly building out of the first function, is to help us see more deeply. Because it's very hard to see when the surface of the water is agitated. You can't see through into the the bottom. But when the surface is calm and clear, still, then you can see into the water. So if you, your mind is agitated, if your heart has a lot of waves, you can't really see very well inside. So there, at some point there needs to be a willingness to stop chasing, to stop looking, looking outside or looking or attacking or wanting. A willingness to stop. The Chinese character and they translated Buddhism into Chinese, the character for concentration, they used the character for stop. And the character for insight, they used the character to see. Such a simple way of talking about the practice. Stop and look. Isn't that great? So tranquility arising out of a variety of different things, a willingness to stop, a willingness to relax, to appreciate relaxation as part of it. If you remember from my first talk, I talked about these, uh, one way of summarizing the first instruction in mindfulness the Buddha gave was to recognize, feel or experience fully, and then relax. My early years of practice, 
uh, it wasn't a message that was given very clearly that it that was useful to relax. But it's good to relax, not because partly because it's healing and partly because it helps us to see, quiets the waves. So here we are. Here we are. Here you are. It's a profound statement. Where else would you be? And then to settle here, to relax into this, to settle back in this. An image that I like, or an image kind of for practice, I think someone, maybe like John's image, I think it was John, the um, sitting in an easy chair. Whatever troubles you, if you can feel your troubles, feel a felt sense of it, be with it. Imagine that there's an easy chair in the middle of your troubles, your fear, your anger, your anxiety. And then go sit in that chair and relax. Sit in the chair in the middle of what troubles you and just sit there and relax and look. As opposed to react and want and fix, pull away. Sit in the middle, be willing to sit in the middle, sit in the middle. Come and sit in the middle, come here, be here. So as we use, as we become calmer, more tranquil, and I can reassure you that you're all calmer now than you were a week ago, before you came to the retreat. And I, I think I said this earlier, but it's also uh, very common for people not to realize how calm they are because you've habituated to it. It happens slowly. And you didn't really kind of, you know, nothing's changed, right? You know, because you didn't notice the slow, slow kind of settling, relaxing, unwinding. But whatever calm or tranquility you have, <clears throat> it can become your teacher. And I think uh, to use ease or peacefulness or calm or relaxation as your teacher is a very effective way of practicing. One of the great little pithy instructions I heard for practice many years ago was from Ajahn Amaro. And his instructions for meditation was, um, set yourself at ease. I interpret that to mean, set yourself at whatever modicum of ease you can have access to. Set yourself at ease, and then notice what takes you away from it. Notice what causes you to lose it. 
And I've used that practice a lot in my life because it becomes my teacher then. One of the great things to do is to notice that you have, you know, notice, appreciate that you have some ease, some relaxation, some calmness. And then be attentive enough to notice when you start losing it, start getting tense or agitated, restless. And then stop as soon as you can and take a look at what just happened. For, and then ask yourself this question. What was worth while to lose your ease for? Why did, why, what did you do? What was, what was so important that you had to sacrifice your ease? So I'll give you a very mundane example. Back in the days when people had newspapers, maybe some of you still do, morning newspapers that were delivered, I liked to read the newspaper having breakfast. And it was, I would sit, meditate, I'd make breakfast, I'd have breakfast, eat the newspaper, very nice. But then I had to get the kids to school. And, uh, and then I noticed that by the time I got the kids to school, I was wiped out. The kids are really small. It was like hurting cats. And, um, and so, um, but I didn't want to give up, you know, so I was like, what's going on here? And I realized that I was attached to reading the newspaper in the morning. And I said, is it worthwhile sacrificing my ease and the calm I have so I can read the newspaper? What's more important? Usually a week later, I don't remember what I read anyway. So I gave up the paper in the morning. So I'd have more time to kind of make the breakfast more slowly and get the kids dressed and have more time to sh- shepherd them into the car and, you know, everything. And then I could keep my ease. So that question, what are, you will- what are you sacrificing your ease for? I was sacrificing it for reading the newspaper. So here in retreat, for, in retreat, for example, uh, it's, it can be fascinating to watch how you're willing to sacrifice your ease over being first in line for a meal. Or I've, I've gone out, you know, left, and something about the meals and walking to the meal has sometimes done a certain thing to me, like, I've got to get there, I want that, you know, kind of leaning forward, and there's a little kind of clinging and wanting. And the calm that I had is lost, not, you know, to some degree. Or, or you're looking down the meal at the table and they only have, you know, there's only one more apple left in the fruit bowl and the person in front of you takes it. Or there's one more bowl, one more apple left and there's four or five people ahead of you in line and you want that apple. <laughs> and you look, they got to take it and you study you study them and you try to remember what they ate before and then you pray and 
relieved when the first person doesn't take it, and then anxious when the first next their hand goes towards the football. <laughs> what happened to your calm, the ease? Are, so to have the ability to stop and look at this, to have this ability not to be seduced by what causes us to be agitated, but to have the ability to stop and take an honest look. What just happened? Why am I, why am I sacrificing my ease? You'll learn so much about yourself just in that. Establish yourself in ease, some modicum of ease, then notice what takes you away. A, ver- a variety, a version of this that I like also is the question, um, for what is it worthwhile to sacrifice your relaxed breath? you have a relaxed breathing, what is worth giving it up for? And then look at the answers your mind comes up with. You might get some really good ones, but you might get some that doesn't take a lot of reflection and say, that's not really worth it. So part of the function of tranquility is not to be tranquil, but to have the wherewithal, the space in the mind, the time in the mind, the sense of presence, to do the investigation, to look, what's going on here? And one of the reasons this is very important is that um, the primary cause of agitation is clinging, the mind's tendency to cling. And it's a quite profound, quite deep. The clinging thing is quite deep. They say that, uh, that restlessness that's caused by clinging, the most subtle versions of it is not given up until the final st- uh, stage of awakening, becoming an arhat. So look at the clinging. The Buddha said that um, when there's no clinging, there's no agitation. And when there's no agitation, then the mind becomes free. So to study clinging, to understand the nature of clinging, because we have more space, more openness in the mind. And this is important because I know that it's so easy, I've done this myself, to get seduced by states. If you do get concentrated, do get tranquil, do get joy, do get concentrated, that it's, it's like, wow, now I'm ready for my spiritual retirement. I'll retire here. <laughs> you know, I got it made. This is it. This is what it's all about. This shows me that I've, you know. But that's not, it's not about states. It's about having the ability to stop and look carefully and to see where we cling and to learn to let go of the clinging, to release it. That's where freedom from um, agitation is found. There are different kinds of tranquility. There's tranquility of the body, which is almost muscular. 
the muscles themselves kind of radiate and ooze, pervade a feeling of peace and settled relaxation. The feeling of tranquility as a factor of awakening is not conventional relaxation, but is a, it's a radiant feeling of peace that kind of spreads through the body. There is tranquility of the mind, where the mind is peaceful or balanced, at ease, spacious. I love this room. I like sitting here a lot. I'm sorry you have to sit there. There's enough space for all of us on the stage. But what I like is, um, I like looking up. From here, it's all this, you know, it's, it's so peaceful and space spacious. If I look at all of you, I, you know, I see some of you have shawls and nice shawls and that would be a nice shawl. I wonder how my meditation would be like if I could have that shawl and, you know, and, and that's a nice color and how could they get that color? I mean, you know, that color doesn't work in a meditation hall. I mean, you know, like, you know, don't they know that what they, do at, what they do at the Zen centers, you'd never get away with a color like that. And my mind can get really busy, right? But if I look up there, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. To have lots of space in the mind to hold everything. To have breathing room for your experience. To not ride your experience so tightly and close, like everything is important and meaningful, everything has to be reacted to and done to. Just let it be. Here's a little one word, little practice that you can do that maybe helps you be more at ease with what's happening. No matter what is happening to you, whatever your experience is, <clears throat> and you're recognizing that it's happening, add the word just in front of it. It's just a thought. It's just fear. It's just knee pain. It's just anger. It's just peace. See what happens to you if you just add the word just in front. And my hope is that adding the word just in front, you, you, you don't react so much to it. Just let it be. Just let it, let it be. It's okay. You don't have to make it such a big thing. Interpret it. And identify with it. And it's just restlessness. Don't take it so personally. Don't use it to define yourself. This is who I am. Let it be. Because one of the, one of the primary sources, sources kind of clinging that causes agitation is all the ways in which we build up a sense of identity. Something that I had to face a lot in my early years of practice was how much I wanted people to like me. I had to give that up, wanting people to like me. 
and I had to give it up. Only, only was willing to give it up when I saw how, how painful it was for me to have this constant, constant trying to do the social gymnastics to get people to like me. Such a headache. It's better not to care. More peaceful. <clears throat> I mean, it's nice to have people like me, but it's fine if you like me. <laughs> In case you do, don't feel like, you know, it's not appreciated. <laughs> So, um, so there was this man in the time of the Buddha named Anattapindika who was dying from an illness. Remember, this is long ago when they didn't have uh, pain medication. So nowadays they have palliative care and all kinds of things and it's not that common anymore to die with a lot of pain because of all the medication they have to help Force comes to worst, they give people morphine now and knock them out so they don't feel the pain, right? But back then there was nothing like this. So Ananda Pindika was um, was dying, and the Buddha's disciple Sariputta came to see him. And Sariputta sat down and he said to him, "I hope you're getting well." I hope you're comfortable. I hope your painful feelings are subsiding and not increasing. And that, they're, and that they're subsiding, not their increase, is apparent. So he's wishing him well, hopes things are going well. And Anattapindika replied, Venerable Sariputta, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not, subs- not subsiding. Their increase and not their subsiding is apparent. Just as if a strong man were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so too violent winds cut through my head. I am not getting well. Just as if a strong man were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox belly with a butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. Just as if two strong men were to seize a weaker man by both arms and roast him over a pit of hot coals, so too there is a violent burning in my body. I am not getting well. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Their increase and not their subsiding is apparent. And I know it's maybe a bit much to read this in the fourth day of a retreat <laughs> and a talk about tranquility. <laughs> maybe agitating just hearing this. But I, but I, I hope it's quieting in a certain way, tranquilizing in a certain way that comes from taking what we're doing here quite seriously. It's really important what we do. This is, this is a, this is, what we're, practice we're doing here is a practice to be able to be in the waterfall, practice to meet the most deepest and most difficult challenges that human beings are experience. 
So here's a man who was going through, he was dying with a lot of pain. So what did Sariputta teach him? So Sariputta gave him some teaching. It was kind of like, a, I think, I, I read it as kind of like a guided meditation. I won't read all of it to you, but first I'll read the result of the teaching, what the impact it had on Ananda Pindika to hear these teachings. When this was said, when he received these teachings, Anathapindika wept and shed tears. Then another monk who was there asked him, are you foundering? Are you sinking? He heard these great teachings and he started crying. Oh no, what did I say? You know, made it worse. And the Pindika said, no, no. I am not foundering, I'm not sinking. I've been listening to the Buddha for a long time, but I've never heard such profound teachings as these. He shed tears, maybe of gratitude, of appreciation, of release at what he'd heard. So you can imagine, he's dying, he's in pain. What is it? What is it you could teach someone in that circumstance that can move them that much? So here's what the teaching he got. And this is only in part. It's repeated many times over in different ways. Like I said, like a guided meditation to really drive it home. But I think in this context, I'll just read a piece of it. Anathapindika, you should train as follows. I will not cling to this world and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world. I will not cling to the world beyond and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond. Thus you should train. You should train as follows. I will not cling to what is seen, heard, sensed, cognized, encountered, sought after, and examined by the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on that. Thus, you should train. Basically saying, no matter what you see, know, experience, don't cling to it. Don't let your consciousness become dependent, hold on to, be defined by anything in the known world. Somewhere else the Buddha said, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. Nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. Is that the teaching you want as you're dying? Is that something you want to try to do as you're dying? Not to cling? Because when you're still going strong and healthy, people can be really good at justifying clinging. But, you know, yes, I'll give up my clinging, but not to that, you can't do that. 
but maybe it's a gain for everyone involved, the whole world, for your family and friends and loved ones, for you not to cling. It's not a selfish thing to do. And so tranquility, to be able to come here, come back to your experience, settle in here, relax into here, be with your experience. Train yourself to begin to relax, let go into your experience, with your experience. Begin to appreciate that beyond, outside of the world of thinking and thoughts, where so much of the agitation, so much of our agitation comes from the world of thinking, that just beyond the edges of your thoughts, just underneath them, like under the sea, just above your thoughts, there's a world of tranquility and peace. Just like a, here in this hall, above your heads, there's this huge space of peace. Can you tap into the peace that's here, the stillness that's here, the softness that's here? The stability and quiet that's here, stillness, silence. Can you tap into it? Can you tune into it when it's here and use it as your teacher to begin watching the movements of the mind where agitation is born, where agitation is, and to see what are you clinging to and is it necessary to cling? And I would like to make a final suggestion here to you. The Buddha said, nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to. It's a hard teaching to really take in and to believe or to understand or believe or feel like it's okay. Is it safe enough to do that? The world is a scary place. I need my clinging. So I'd like to modify the Buddha's teachings for us here on this retreat. Nothing whatsoever is worth clinging to while you're on retreat. <laughs> Try it here. And then when the retreat's over, you can start up again <laughs> if you feel a need to do it. But take the chance here, take the risk. The work you're doing here is very meaningful and important. I started my first talk by expressing my gratitude to you. And I'd like to end this talk the same way. I'm very grateful. I have a lot of thanks for what you're doing here and the importance of it. I hope that you approach yourself with care, with reverence, with respect and give yourself over more fully to this practice, not to tighten up and to strive, but to settle in and be more wholehearted as you settle and arrive here and be here and learn what you're doing. So you can pull the arrow out.
So let's end with our recollecting, settling in again. to be here with no conflict to what is here, just here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.